Hi there, and welcome to Poverty Unpacked, the podcast series in which we discuss the hidden sides of poverty. I'm your host, Katie Rulin, and in conversation with others, we explore how poverty affects the mind, relationships, emotions, and society as a whole, and what can be done to change it. In this episode, we'll be discussing the issue of climate change and its devastating effects, especially for people in poverty. Climate change represents a double form of injustice for people already living precarious lives. People in poverty contribute least to emissions that contribute to climate change, but also benefit least from policies that either try to mitigate climate change or help people adapt to it. With COP27 around the corner, the big annual global conference that brings together experts, politicians and policymakers to discuss how to act in the face of climate change, We discuss in this episode exactly what makes people in low-income settings so vulnerable and how policies can be more effective in helping to withstand the effects of climate shocks. I'm joined by two colleagues from the Food and Agriculture Organization, or FAO, who are based in Rome and work on rural poverty in many countries around the world. Nicholas Sitko is Senior Economist and Marco Knowles is Senior Social Protection Officer, both in the Inclusive Rural Transformation and Gender Equality Division. Together we are zooming in on the issue of climate change adaptation, which refers to people changing their behaviours and practices so that they are better able to cope with severe weather events such as floods or droughts as a result of climate change. You will also hear Nick and Marco refer to mitigation, This refers to policies that try to halt or reduce the speed of climate change, such as promoting the use of cleaner energy. Nick and Marco, thank you very much for joining the podcast today. And it's great to have you with us at this time, as we are all gearing up for COP27, which is the annual global climate change conference, and it gets underway in Egypt this year. And it will be really interesting to hear from you about why it's so important to consider climate change and vulnerability and poverty in tandem with each other. And of course, what kind of policies can help people adapt to climate change. So maybe to start a conversation, it will be really helpful to get a better sense of who is most vulnerable to climate change. Nick, could you say something about how climate change and the shocks that people experience affect those living in poverty and in vulnerable conditions? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Katie. So in the climate change world, the concept of vulnerability is kind of revolves around three components. So they talk about exposure, which is the exposure to the extreme events caused by climate change, floods, droughts, high temperatures, etc. Then they talk about sensitivity, and that's how much your livelihood is affected by those shocks. And then the final part of vulnerability in this world is adaptive capacity. And so that's kind of your your ability to moderate the adverse effects of the kind of shocks that you're being exposed to. Now, when we so we take that lens and we apply that to the social world, and we can we can think about vulnerability in terms of the sensitivity that people have to these these shocks in terms of their livelihoods, in terms of their incomes, their food security, et cetera, and their ability to adapt to those. So the kind of behavior changes that they can make to moderate those effects. And ideally, these will be behaviors that don't have long-lasting adverse effects, so what we call maladaptation. So, for example, selling your most productive assets just to you know, fill a food security need in the short term. So, you know, rural people in general are particularly sensitive to climate change, right? Because they are 
their livelihoods, and in fact, their whole kind of economies that they live within are totally interconnected with the environment, you know, whether or not it rains, whether or not there's a drought, et cetera. So they, they tend to be very, very sensitive. But the thing is, is that, you know, human, humans have adapted to changing climate conditions for millennia, right? This is, this is not something new for us, but what is new is that the pace of change is so fast. I mean, we've seen it just over the last few years, just incessant shocks over and over. They're just coming so quickly. And that's where the real challenge lies. So when we think about this vulnerability, it's, it's really how do we, and who are the most able to adapt and who are the least able to adapt to these recurring shocks to, to moderate this? And that really comes down in a lot of ways to resources because adaptation is fundamentally about behavior change. It's about altering what you're doing to do something different. And that has costs, right? That has costs in terms of if you're a farmer, you need to buy new equipment, you need to buy new seeds, you need to change your labor, et cetera. All has costs. It also has a lot of risks because you don't know if I do this, whatever that change is, is it going to lead to a better outcome? Because I've always done something else and I know what that outcome is. And in fact, you know, with a lot of these adaptation strategies, the benefits of them come in the future because they rely on improving ecosystems. They rely, you know, you think about things like agroforestry or planting trees, et cetera. You don't get benefits from that immediately, but you have a lot of immediate costs. Those people with very limited resources tend to be the most vulnerable, particularly those that are dependent on, on kind of natural systems like farmers, like fishers, like forest dependent people. You know, so there's the private resources that people have, but there's the public resources as well, right? So infrastructure, climate information, you know, those kind of things also help you adapt. Those tend to be poorly developed in countries that don't have many resources, right? Let's sort of least developed countries. You can imagine so the high levels of vulnerability among people who depend on these ecosystems, who have low resources themselves, and then live in resource poor areas. Those are the most vulnerable to climate change. Thank you, Nick. That's really helpful to, to sort of set the scene. Marco, you, both of you work with FAO and you focus a lot on rural populations and also small-scale producers, some of the, the groups that Nick was referring to. And then Nick also mentioned that there is lack of resources for people individually in a household level and then those resource allocations to help people adapt to climate change. So if there's limited resource allocation in terms of infrastructure and services, what are the implications for small-scale producers? I see it really in terms of the, the implications, there is the high risk of injustice and increasing inequality because the, the people who least contribute to greenhouse gas emissions are the people who are most affected by these greenhouse gas emissions and climate change and who are receiving the least support for adapting to these changes in, in climate. To give some examples based on, based on the data, in 2019, in low-income countries, the per capita production of carbon dioxide was 0.3 metric tons per person. Uh, and carbon dioxide is the main con contributor to greenhouse gas emissions and to, to climate change. Comparing this to high-income countries where the per capita production of carbon dioxide is 9.8 metric tons. So that's 33 times more. So people in high-income countries produce 33 times more carbon dioxide than people in low-income countries. So that's a huge difference. And yet, 
the people, people living in low-income countries are those that are most impacted by these climate shocks. So this is a case of, according to me, a case of uh, increasing inequalities. We see recently the case of Pakistan, where between 1850 and 2020, Pakistan has contributed a fraction of greenhouse gas emissions compared to high-income countries. Yet, it is one of the countries that is being most impacted by, by climate change and likewise small-scale farmers in these countries. Why is this the case? Why are there these uh, low allocations to adaptations? I see two main reasons. On the one hand, it's probably explained by low level of participation, representation and influence of bodies that are representing uh, small-scale producers in decision-making processes. So how much influence uh, do small-scale producers have in the decision-making processes related to, to climate change? And secondly, there is also the perception that giving money to adaptation is simply a cost. It doesn't generate additional, uh, additional money. And that's not the case. We have evidence uh, generated by FAO together with UNICEF, the University of North Carolina, and evidence that others have generated, showing that that's quite the opposite. When money is distributed to small-scale farmers, they actually become more productive. They're generating additional income. They generate more income than they're receiving through the transfers. For instance, they're purchasing uh, livestock, additional agricultural tools, inputs like fertilizers, pesticides that allows them to be more productive. They then purchase themselves more food on the market in the, in the communities that they're living in. They purchase additional inputs, and this generates benefits in the, in the economies. So actually, what, we have, what the evidence shows is that giving money to, to adaptation, giving money to small-scale farmers, generates additional income. It's an investment, not only, not only a cost. But I'm also feeling hopeful, seeing some of the changes that are taking place. For instance, Denmark in August this year, has committed to allocate 60% of its funding for uh, climate to adaptation. And likewise, the UK and the Netherlands are following likewise. So there's, there's hope, there's some change, some changes taking place. So hopefully it's, we're on a positive, more positive trajectory. Thanks, Marco. So you speak about the need for those who are vulnerable to the effects of climate change to adapt and mentioned how for example, the provision of cash transfers can help people do that. But Nick, can you elaborate a bit more about the need to adapt in the first place and what that really means in practice? If I'm in fisheries, for example, or I'm a small-scale farmer, what does it mean to adapt and what kind of policies or how, such as cash transfers, for example, can help me do that? Yeah, thank you. So adaptation tends to be very specific, site-specific, person-specific, and hazard-specific. So adapting to a drought is different than adapting to high heat. Adapting in fisheries is different than adapting in agriculture. And so really those kind of nuts and bolts decision around the sort of adaptation pathways really also need to be very tailored to the specific context. But kind of more broadly, adaptation is fundamentally a behavior change. And so this means altering what you're doing to do something different. And that involves changing how you invest, changing how you orient your life livelihood. Are you going to diversify off a farm? Are you going to specialize in particular things, et cetera? And so those kind of behavior changes are what are required, but at the same time tend to be the most difficult for poor people 
to, to do. And there's various reasons for that. You know, I mean, there's the cost element, purchasing the equipment and doing those sorts of things, learning new practices and the time that that takes to do that. And then there's the risk element, you know, the uncertainty around these things and the fact that they may not generate any benefits for you for a number of years, or they may even have an adverse effect on your, let's say, agricultural production in the short term because you're learning new things, because there's a lot of trial and error that goes on. And because that is sort of what happens when you switch farm systems, for example, from one that is very reliant on like a monoculture production system that is heavily dependent on external inputs to something where you're trying to build up soil organic matter and trying to make the, the system more diversified, et cetera. There are a lot of risks there and there is agronomic evidence that shows look, in the short term, sometimes your yields go down. And vulnerable populations absolutely cannot handle that, right? Their, their decisions about what they do in terms of the investments they make are fundamentally tied to concerns about their food security. And for that reason, you know, there's a whole long literature on, you know, what they call the inseparability of these decisions. You cannot separate them when you are in a situation where you can't manage those risks. And so you tend to get sort of short-term investments, you people that are kind of thinking about immediate needs rather than kind of long-term issues like adaptation, for example. And so this is where things like a cash transfer, particularly those that are recurrent, that are predictable, helps to really address some of these major barriers to, to adaptation. Because, I mean, frankly, if you look at the evidence on adaptation, and let's say specific agricultural practices that are being promoted for adaptation, it's almost never the poorest that are doing it. It's almost always those that have a little bit of surplus land, that have higher incomes, higher education, et cetera. They're able to handle this. This is why it's so important to be able to provide these vulnerable populations. You know, I want to say it's a floor, like a consumption floor. You know that you're not going to lose everything if you are going to try something different as well as providing you with the liquidity to do it. So that's why social protection programs can be so important. But of course, those things don't happen in a vacuum, right? It's not like you give cash and all of a sudden adaptation happens. I mean, it has to be bundled with a lot of other things. It needs to be combined with information about how do you adapt. It needs to be combined with functional infrastructure and education and health systems. I mean, it's not like we're talking about a silver bullet, but we're, we are talking about what I would say is a necessary precondition for poorer households, more vulnerable households to be able to take that, that next step, right? So overcoming that, that divide around the poor versus the non-poor and who can adapt and who cannot. Social protection can play a role there. That's really clear. Thank you. And Marco mentioned the floods in, in Pakistan, of course, all around the world. In the past year, we've seen droughts, we've seen fires, we've seen how climate change affects people's lives on a very acute manner. But do you have any examples of cash transfer or bundled with other interventions that make this a little bit more tangible in terms of how it can help people? Yeah, no, thanks. The, the, let's say the empirical evidence on how these, these kind of programs affect people's livelihoods and their productive decision-making behaviors is can be grouped into two main categories when, when thinking about climate change in particular. 
on one hand, there's, there's kind of a small but hopefully growing literature that looks specifically at sets of kind of climate adaptive practices and whether or not having access to social protection improves the likelihood that farmers will, will adopt them. So I've been part of studies in Ethiopia and Malawi, one looking at a food transfer program, which you know can function a lot like a cash program when most of your expenditures are on food. It tends to free up cash to do other things and, and reduces risk, as well as a public works program in Malawi. And we looked at a couple adaptive practices, mulching, soil water conservation structures that help you reduce erosion and things like that when floods occur, which is happening a lot in Malawi now. Last year, it was hit by two cyclones. And we found, yes, pretty strong positive effects uh, relative to very similar households that did not receive social protection of these programs on adopting these practices. So in other words, having that access to those social protection interventions did cause a change in the adoption of those practices. So that's one area of literature and it's, it's growing. The other is more kind of generally around the productive effects of these programs. So not necessarily focused only on climate and climate adaptation, but more broadly around activities that you would expect to help mitigate some of the, the effects of, of climate change. Things like income diversification or propensity to buy new agricultural technologies like improved seeds, uh, like drought tolerant seeds, things like that. Propensity to kind of accumulate assets instead of losing assets, kind of building those up over time. And so we have some very good evidence on that. In Malawi and Kenya, access to a cash transfer program was associated with a 13 and 30% increase in the agricultural assets that households owned compared to people that didn't get the program, but were very similar. In Zambia, we saw a 242% increase in expenditure on improved agricultural inputs as a result of these programs. Ethiopia, we saw a 41% increase in the propensity to invest in non-farm agricultural activities, so like small enterprises, things like that, diversifying away from less weather-dependent sort of activities is, is, is critical. But again, you know, the bundling of these programs is, is important. So we tend to see larger impacts on these productive outcomes when you're targeting a larger share of the poor population, not restricting it to for example, just labor-constrained households and things like that, and when it's combined with other sorts of supports like training and mentorship, and because there are a lot of psychological processes going on here as well, and, and those kind of supports can help uh, address those, those barriers that may prevent people from taking on these new challenges. Great, thank you for, for that explanation. It gives a really good overview of the types of programming. And I think Marco already indicated that the range of evidence in terms of what cash transfers can do at household level. Now, Marco, Nick mentioned these examples in different places. We talked about the importance of particularly people living in rural areas, having the ability to adapt and, and how social protection can help. But when we look across particularly low-income countries and rural areas within them, what is the coverage of these programs? Globally, there's 4 billion people lack access to social protection. So there has been progress in the coverage, but there are still huge gaps. And there's a, there's a striking map 
that has been developed by the International Labour Organization, which shows rates of coverage, compares the rates of coverage of social protection and compares this to the countries that are most, most exposed to climate risk, to climate shocks. And we see almost a one-to-one -one match where the countries with the lowest coverage are the countries that are most exposed to climate risks. And if you compare this to a map showing the per capita output of greenhouse gas emissions, you'll see that the, those countries that have the lowest per capita greenhouse gas emissions are those countries that are most exposed to climate risks. And these are the countries that have the lowest coverage of social protection. So I find this very, very worrying. You know? There's a lot of work to be done. In terms of the coverage in rural areas, again, coverage has improved over the last two, two decades. But when we look at low-income countries, what we see is that 75% of the poorest households in rural areas in low-income countries have no access to social protection. In low-middle-income countries, it's 50% of the poorest households that have no, in rural areas that have no access to social protection. So there are huge gaps in coverage. And at the same time, when people do have access to social protection, the amount of money that they're receiving per person is very low. In low-income countries, it's 30 cents of a dollar per person per day in rural areas. And in lower middle income countries, it's 70 cents of a dollar per person per day in rural areas. So the transfer values are very low. If we compare these to the poverty line, which is $2.15, we see there's a, there's a huge gap in the, in the transfer value. So what we're seeing is that those who are most in need of support are those that have least access to, to adequate coverage. Thanks, Marco. That's helpful and also quite worrying, as you say. Now, we are gearing up for COP27. It's the time of year when countries come together to discuss what to do about climate change. Given what social protection can do, and particularly these cash transfer and bundled interventions, to what extent is that part of the conversation? And to what extent is it going to become part of thinking about how to move in relation to climate change? Well, the International Governmental Panel on Climate Change, which includes the top experts in the world on, uh, on climate change, it also includes representatives of government, produce a report. And this, so this report is something like the sacred text on, on climate change, given the, the, the people who've been involved in this production. The sixth report, which came out earlier this year, mentions social protection 188 times, whereas the previous report, the fifth report, mentioned social protection only 44 times. So we see that there's an increasing recognition of the importance of social protection as a policy instrument managing climate change and the transitions that are needed. At the same time, when there is reference to social protection, it's largely seen as an instrument for helping people deal with the immediate impacts or consequences of, of a climate shock, generally supporting them in accessing sufficient food in the aftermath of a shock. There is little reference to social protection as a tool for helping people make some of the transitions that Nick was referring to earlier. And then we've taken, we've gone a step lower, looking at what's happening at the national level. And we've looked at these the national adaptation plans and nationally declared contributions. So these are the government national documents which state what governments will do with respect to what were the government's plans for adapting to climate change and what are the commitments they make for mitigating climate change. And in both sets of documents, we found very limited reference to social protection. 
Take, for example, in the national adaptation plans out of 33, which are available, only 11 of these mentioned social protection at least once. And only three of these mentioned social protection more than three times. These are Ethiopia, Chad, and Liberia. So there seems to be a disconnect between the discourse that is taking place at the, at the global level and what is happening at the national level. This COP27 is coming at an interesting time, of course. So in the lead up to the last COP in Glasgow, there was a, a kind of a flurry of evidence that came out around the financing for climate actions and particularly the pledges that wealthy nations made in Copenhagen, you know, a decade before in terms of what they would contribute to mitigate, support mitigation and adaptation in least developed countries. And so the OECD put out a report that said last year, the, the transfer is equaled about $80 billion, which is about $20 billion less per year than what was uh, pledged, a sizable amount of money. But when they started sort of unpacking that, Oxfam took a kind of a closer look at it. And, um, you know, a lot of that financing included loans at market rates, for example, which are not really the most kind of equitable tool for least developed countries to deal with a problem that was mostly caused by wealthy countries. And so they put the figure more realistically at around 20 billion per year. So we have this huge kind of gap between what was committed and what countries were actually contributing. When they started pulling that apart a little bit more, they, they showed that, for example, there is a very large disconnect between where the money for mitigation and money for adaptations, adaptation receiving quarter of the amount that mitigation was receiving, in part because, like Marco mentioned, it's, it's more financeable, right? You can generate money through renewable energy and you can generate money through those sorts of sources where adaptation doesn't have any immediate private benefits. It has plenty of public benefits. And then there was a report that came out by, by EFAD, so the International Fund for Agriculture Development, that showed in the whole climate universe, only 1.7% of the total, total finance was actually going to small-scale farmers. So we have this layering of, of issues, right? Not enough money in general, very little for adaptation, and almost none for small-scale farmers. And so all those things kind of fed into the COP26, and there was this recognition of, oh, we need to increase our spending. We need to increase support for agriculture. And we need to increase support for, for adaptation. And we see some of that reflected in increased allocations to the adaptation fund, which specifically targets adaptation uh, actions, and the least developed country fund, where a lot of the very poor rural households, you know, they're live, they live in those countries. And so that's all sort of good news. Going into this COP, I would expect to see a lot more momentum and pressure around how to take action on this. So we're operating in a universe where the funds are increasing, but they're not enough. And we need to make the best use of that money. And how do we do that? Well, let's kind of look at what the evidence is telling us. We see it in the IPCC report that social protection is an important part of this. And more broadly, that inclusivity is essential for achieving our climate development strategies, right? They make that crystal clear. And so I would expect that we're gonna see a lot more in this COP around those mechanisms and particularly around social protection. In fact, we'll be organizing an event at the FAO pavilion 
at, at COP27 around specifically this issue. How do we go about leveraging social protection to support adaptation? Talking about the evidence and then talking about the actual programmatic modalities around how to do that. And that's really where we need to start moving is this conceptual shift around how we think about social protection, not just a tool for moderating crises and humanitarian disasters, but also a tool for growth and economic development and participation and, and adaptation. You know, I'm cautiously optimistic that the discourse will begin <laughs> shifting in that direction. That's great to hear. Thank you, Nick. Picking up on the point that you made about, you know, the funds available, but increasingly more emphasis on social protection and linking it back to what Marco was saying before about the ways in which social protection features in some of these plans. Marco, what do you think were some of the sticking points when it comes to limited representation of social protection in climate change plans and policies? And thinking about Nick's optimism, how can they be addressed in terms of moving forward? So I think there are several possible explanations. One is that ministries of social development or ministries that are managing social protection policies and programs and ministries of environment are not used to working together. Uh, and there are different incentives that, that drive them. No? So ministries of environment are rewarded for achieving goals associated with environmental sustainability, for instance, for increasing forest coverage or for reducing land degradation, whereas ministries managing social protection programs are rewarded for achieving goals with respect to uh, increasing coverage of social protection. And so the different, the different goals that, that are driving them, they don't see a need to, to collaborate. Coordinating between different between different actors is always difficult. It's even more difficult if there isn't a sense of going in a, in a similar direction. So there's a need to identify what are these common interests that can pull together the different sets of actors from the ministries of environment, the ministries of social development, and the other non-state actors that, uh, that, manage, that are involved in influencing these policy processes. And then, as Nick was saying, there's a, there's a need to reconceptualize re the role of social protection. It's not just a handout. It really has a whole a role to play in ensuring that even small-scale producers can take part in processes of change in economic development and change with respect to adapting to, to the changing environment. I'm optimistic since they see, you know, together with, uh, with Nick, we've been interacting with other development partners. There's a growing interest in an understanding on the role of social protection in adaptation. At the same time, the recent shocks that we've experienced globally in the world with COVID now, the increasing food prices are a double-edged sword for social protection because they've increased attention and understanding of the importance of social protection and of investing in social protection systems so that they are better able to respond when there is a, when there is a shock. But I see that there's also potentially the risk of social, social protection being increasingly associated with being an instrument for exclusively responding to shocks, not as an instrument that can support processes of change. Thank you. And if I can ask you another question on the role of social protection and some skepticism maybe in terms of how they can support vulnerable households and families adapt to climate change, but also concerns maybe in the fringes, but it's being mentioned that it might actually 
accelerate climate change or, or be bad in terms of the climate. So, for example, all of a sudden people have increased income to have a car, for example. Well, they might not have one before. What do you think about those concerns or arguments against the use of social protection for people living in poverty and vulnerability? I think that this preoccupation, this possible preoccupation some people have as to whether providing poor people in low-income countries is going to contribute to increased climate change is thoroughly misplaced. Poor people in low-income countries are contributing far less to climate change than people in high-income countries. So it would also be more just and more effective to look at how we can enable people in high-income countries to reduce their carbon emissions rather than working on, on the fringes and contributing to greater injustice by focusing on how we can prevent people in high-income countries from contributing to, to climate change. I mean, these transfers are not, we're not talking about massive amounts of money here. We're talking about very small annual transfers that can support these sort of livelihood changes, but are not going to radically change consumption patterns to the point where they're going to have major emissions impacts. But in fact, could, if targeted well, could even be contribute to some carbon sequestration through more planting of trees, more conservation of natural ecosystems. It is really farmers or rural people who are the custodians of most of the remaining forests in the world. And it is, in fact, mostly land expansion pressure that's putting, that's being placed on those forests that is the cause of deforestation, not, not entirely from small-scale farmers. I mean, it's, it's often large-scale farmers as well, or more often. But having incentives to intensify their production on, on their existing land, not having to seek out area expansion as a way to make up for the fact that they don't have the, you know, the right technologies to keep their soils healthy. So that's why they're ex constantly expanding. Those, those are, are net benefits in terms of total emissions. So, you know, I think more the concern that comes from at least uh, some policy circles and some stakeholders is that this money is going to be misappropriated, right? It's just going to create dependency and people are going to become lazy and somehow they're just going to rely on the transfers to have a livelihood, right? And which is an absurd thing to say. I mean, these are, these are tiny amounts of money. They're not going to move somebody from a condition of pretty entrenched poverty to wealthy and living the life of luxury. They're enabling sort of incremental changes to help people you know, multiply that money and, and do something different. And so it's really kind of changing that mindset. And what's so funny, Marco talks about this kind of the ministries of agriculture and the ministries of social protection or social services not communicating very well. I mean, in some ways, it's that same rhetoric about dependency from cash transfers that, that comes from people that are sitting in, in ministries that are providing subsidies on fertilizer and, and, and subsidies on maize prices and things like that, which tend to be captured by much better off farmers that are kind of perpetuating the same language. Well, the cash is going to make you lazy, whereas the inputs are going to make you more productive, even though there's no evidence of that. So it's kind of, we need to, we need to really kind of work on that and reframing social protection around those issues.
And Katie, I would also add the, the gaps in coverage are so high. You know, as I was explaining earlier, that 75% of the poorest households in rural areas in, in low-income countries have no access to, to social protection. Social protection would have to be massively expanded in order to, be, to really have a, a, make a contribution to greenhouse gas emissions. Thank you both. I'm really happy that you both debunked that myth that there is a real concern around increasing emissions through uh, social protection, and but that there also might be the potential to reduce them as people are able to adopt new practices. And Nick, also, thank you for debunking the other myth on dependency, which is also so persistent, but has also been proven untrue in many and most contexts. So as we're nearing the end of the conversation, you've already alluded to your hopes for COP27, but I will ask you if you have any more and what your thoughts are on what's going to happen. What do you think will be some of the main things that will be discussed and takeaways, which you hope might happen or which you think might happen? Um, Nick, do you want to go first? Sure, thanks. Well, I mean, what I hope will happen is that this language in the the report that, that Marco mentioned, which is the Working Group 2 Assessment Report 6 of the IPCC, if anybody wants to look it up, this language around inclusivity and the importance of it for the, what they call climate resilient development pathways is really taken on board in a meaningful way. That it's not just we're going to innovate our way out of this catastrophe that we are actually gonna take serious the issues around poverty, marginalization, that inhibit people and from adapting, that, that make people more vulnerable to this, and that fundamentally make our climate investments less effective. I mean, if we're leaving a whole bunch of people out when we're trying to mitigate climate, for example, restoring an ecosystem, but yet our, our, our interventions are completely exclusive in the sense that they're not benefiting and not reaching most of the people, well, those, those projects are going to fail. And so we really need to take this on board in a really meaningful way. We need to kind of mainstream it through everything that's done. And I'm hoping that there'll be some momentum around that. Thank you. Marco? Well, there, there are two sides of me. No, I'm, I'm partly Sicilian, so Southern Italy passionate and another side British, more rational. So the Sicilian side of me would love to see this a concrete commitment being made to allocate climate financing to expanding coverage of social protection in rural areas. Another part of me, the British side tempers this a bit and says, okay, that's unlikely to happen in a few weeks time. But what is more likely and a step in that right direction is to start creating that the, the, um, a policy narrative that is conducive to this, uh, to this next step of allocating climate financing for expanding coverage of social protection. And FAO, through the event that Nick mentioned, the side event that FAO is organizing with, together with other partners, is a contribution to that. And we're already in discussion with other partners, for instance, from the International Labour Organization, from the World Bank, in uh, coordinating among ourselves in organizing these events, which will help in creating a common narrative to make this step towards greater recognition of the role of social protection in, in climate adaptation and what is needed for that. Thank you, Marco and Nick. Thank you very much for joining us on this timely topic. And we will keep a close eye on what's happening on, on COP27. And hopefully next year, around this time, we will have even more optimism, at least when it comes to adaptation and helping people become more resilient to shocks that 
look likely to happen in, in future, unfortunately. Thank you, Katie. Thank you, Katie. It's a pleasure. Pleasure. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please follow us on Twitter and social media if you'd like to stay up to date on the most recent episodes and sign up to our newsletter, which you can do via our website, poverty-unpacked.org. We hope you'll join us again next time.